Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I will tell you that... uh, we we arrested. They they came after they came after my partner and uh, and I. They were surveilling my house. Uh, we caught them. We caught them surveilling the house. Like I said, this story would take a long time to tell about why DEA was slow to react. Uh, you know, I can just say, if management had been different all the way to the top, I think things would have been differently. But it doesn't take many cogs in that wheel to cause bad things to happen. But we documented sur- you know, surveillance on our homes. Nothing was done uh, on a little island like Saint Croix. Nothing was done. But uh, yeah, ultimately they machine gunned my partner's uh, personal vehicle. And my, that day, I had been uh, my, what, my one of my other task force partners and I, uh, a guy named Chris. Chris and I had been babysitting Angel's uh, son while he worked a second job. And so we came back that night to the house with uh, with Bombi, his little boy, uh, the kind of kid you that make you wish you had him. I'd never had children, but but I think about Bombi, and uh, you know, I, I wish I would have had kids. I mean, he makes you wish he had kids, but. Uh, yeah, we dropped him off at the uh, dropped off the house, kind of hung out for a little bit, had a little bite to eat with the family and everything, and uh, dropped Bombi off. And then we all kind of left at the same time. On Hell's dad, an old he's an, just an old fisherman. Uh, that's a he's a, just an old Saint Croix fisherman. He borrowed the truck that night, the truck that On and I was went fishing in. You would take it. You could ride down the beach. This is a little island truck, a little rusted out like Nissan Island truck. Angel's father, as we're all leaving, his father took the truck and was going to use the truck for something that next day. And uh, we all leave. Well, they were surveilling from a distance, probably from the mountain across the way. And so we all leave. Well, they always saw, they knew Angel, that was his truck. And and also Angel and I were always, we did stuff, we did it in that truck. But uh, yeah, they, they let that truck get about a mile or two from the house into a kind of like a deserted part of the island. And then pulled up next to it in a full-size Dodge Ram pickup truck with two automatic weapons. Uh, and uh, and just let him have it. And uh, luckily, his 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 dad. I'm telling you, if there's a big guy upstairs, he was watching out for uh, for uh, Machine. That's we call that's that's his nickname was Machine uh, on Hell's father. But uh, yeah, somebody's watching out for him. He took five. I think it was five rounds. They were all skimming shots across his face. Uh, one went through a lip in his teeth, uh, but all of them were and they were still rifled. I mean, they were still spinning straight and true through the window. So he took those across the face. The one that almost killed him went through his arm. It went through the door metal on the car keyhole. The, the bullet turned sideways, full metal jacket bullet turned sideways, hit him in the arm and nicked his brachial artery. But uh, nevertheless, they stopped their truck in front of him to finish. It, they figured probably it was either uh, you know uh, my partner or me or both of us. But they come back and and uh, and Magine, who had been shot, he was still co- he was still uh, he was still conscious. He saw them gather the truck, putting magazines in their rifles through the shattered glass in the windshield. He carried a 357 Magnum because he carried, he worked for a restaurant and he did their night deposits for their money. So he had a permit to carry. And he had a little 357 Magnum in the truck with him. Well, he got, he just shot right through the windshield at him. He got five or six rounds. He passed out before he could get that six round off. But that was enough to scare those guys back into the truck, figuring it's one or both of us still alive and getting out of there. And then the ball rolled hill down from there. We arrested a bunch of the people that we knew were involved in other things. But we couldn't get them for that for that point in time, but we had them on other charges. And the federal magistrate down there let them all go on bond, it, which is, yeah. So, uh, but that was, you know, in the end analysis, that was the best thing that could have happened because over the course of the next eight months, we had 11 or 12 tertiary, I mean, ter- uh, primary bad guys and a whole lot of secondaries and tertiary bad guys. But the primaries in that case of the 11 primaries, Eight of them, eight, yeah, eight of them were killed within that next, I don't know, eight months to ten months. Some of them were killed typical island fashion, where they somebody just runs up real quick and shoots you a bunch of times while you're playing dominoes in a in like a little place or whatever. Other ones were pretty spectacular, getting shot from a distance. Uh, a team coming in, it looked like paramilitary, and taking them out. But in the end analysis, all those bad guys, except for two primaries or three, I'm sorry, three primaries, um, they were all wiped out. I mean, very well done. Uh, in that time period, and uh, the, the final three end up getting theirs. I think the two, 
two of them, two of them end up getting life in prison without, without uh, federal, federal life in probate or life in prison. So it had a happy ending, but it took a little bit of time the, the island was safe for uh, everybody to go back. I know uh, my partner, uh, Majito, his whole family had a little girl, a little boy and his wife. Uh, they, va- they evacuated them off of, uh, off of St. Croix. They ended up being able to go up and visit my parents uh, way up north in Ohio and get to see snow for the first time and go sled riding and all that. And so they had a nice time being evacuated. But uh, they, it was actually by the time it was all said and done, they had a safe place to go back to. All the main bad guys, they were all they were all kaput. And, uh, nice. and the secondaries and, and the secondary and tertiaries, they either went to jail um, or they were so they were so afraid because they didn't know who did it. And it was done professionally. I mean, some of the 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 hits, they were done quite well. And so a lot of those bad guys for a couple of years after that were like, oh boy, let's hide in the basement for a while. Did you get so any was, um, insight on who was behind those hits? Nope. Nobody ever solved that one. Just even did anybody try? <laughs> I <laughs> you know, well, I don't know. Hard, it's I, five I, o'clock. We gotta go. Yeah, we'll work on this case next week. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it might have been a clear by exception for the I, I don't know, but yeah, it never nothing ever nothing ever came of it. And what uh, did it seem to you to be? Was it a rival gang? Or did they piss? I mean, was something normally most of the cartels or some of those other ones? They're I mean, they're just brute force. They come in, they shoot everything up, they do everything up. This sounds more. You know, I hate to say it. This sounds more like something like a nation state. This this sounds like somebody you know special forces training or something like that. Special operators who come in, don't leave a footprint, you know, and then they're gone. I have my theories on what happened, and I just leave it at that. Um, I, well, that's why I was saying I have some theories too. They they rhyme with Delta, you know. Or uh, uh, all I can tell you is it was my. I would just tell you that, that you know, like I said, there were a couple that were they weren't sloppy, but they were the way you do it on that island. If you were another bad guy on that island, there was like two that were kind of like, eh, you know, I can get that one. But the the the, the bulk of them were done, and I would say quite well. Yeah. You know, uh, and I love the story you told about the your, you know, your Virgin Island partner and his family coming to the U.S. for safety. And it's a testament to the law enforcement culture that they got to go visit your family, probably stay in that area for a while. Ohio, right? It, it was. And I'll tell you, it, it, it wore, what warmed my heart is, you know, my, my mom and dad never, ever pushed me to have kids or anything like that, what have you. But I knew that I, when I knew that, you know, I saw when they came up, my dad loved, loved the kids. And, uh, but Bombi, we were, we were going someplace in the snow and Bombi was freezing cold in the backseat. We're all like squeezed into the backseat of a car. And dad was doing the same thing to Bombi that he did for me. He had both of his hands between his like this and whatever reminded me when I was you know nine years old or whatever. And I saw how much dad loved that kid and whatever, but it was a, it was a nice thing. And, and those kids got to see me break my leg. Well, well we're, we're, we have, uh, we had some, we had some old luge. There's old luges like from back in the 1910s, 1880s. We had you mean the ones old, made out of wood. Yeah. Yeah. We had a couple of those from way back in the day. And we have, and I would, I mean, Ohio where we live, it has, uh, and they're not mountains by Alaska standards, but back home we call them mountains. They're, they're really foothills. But we had this giant long slope back behind the house and the kids had never been in snow before. So we had like those little bathtub sleds and some regular, like, you know, ones you won't kill yourself on sleds, but the kids are on this. And, and I'm, this is a really big hill and fast. And, uh, but yeah, we're back there. And so on hell and I, of course, we have our little testosterone and we're like, have a race. And my dad's with us and we had those things. Well, my, my Belgian sheepdog at the time was like my best friend. Uh, her name was Cammy, big black Belgian sheepdog. Uh, I think she's a Dutch shepherd mix. Got her to dog pound. But she's like one of the most important things. I'm like, well, she's down there with the kids romping the stuff at the bottom of the hill. On hell and I get on the sides and we start going down. And I'm, and I'm laying down backwards, just like you see in the Olympics. And you're laying down backwards, flying. We're going down there. Well, Cammy sees us coming and she doesn't have, she's not. Well, it didn't need to get worse and worse on this guy because they tortured him. They did things to this poor old man that, uh, I mean, it, it, everything you can just let your imagination run wild with what you can do uh, uh, to, to butcher Daddy, somebody Daddy. up. And that's what they did to this old cop. And they did it because they knew people would talk about it. And they wanted to scare everybody from the feds to the state guys on the different islands and all the way over into the BVIs, into the British Virgin Islands. But they really worked that guy over by the time it was all said and done. But yeah, so we're investigating that. And it, I'm sorry, like the, not the full-size combat boots, but like hiking boots, you know, like the mids. Yes, it was a pro- it was a process. It took years to make this happen. Uh, we the, the I was only down there for the two years and change, and we had we so we formulated the base of you know who had done it, um, how it had happened, and what have you. But it took years after that to get everybody. I broke my leg clean. Like if you take a guillotine, you couldn't you couldn't have broken that lower part above the ankle any more clean than if you'd taken a guillotine. And uh, um, yeah, your legs all flappy. 
and all that, but oh, but cameo's geez. okay. It cameo's okay, and and whatever. And, and the kids. And when I did that, after I broke my leg, I flipped through the air and did like this like cartwheel through the air, kind of spectacular looking kind of thing. And the kids were like cheering like USA, USA. Bombi Bombi and on yeah Bombi and on Helica thought that I meant to do that, and uh, somehow yeah, I, I ended up being my leg. Yeah, I'm gonna, I meant to be in a cast for you know the next twelve Six months. months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was so they got to see a bunch of things there in Ohio. Oh, they got to see a monster truck pull. They're, they're originally from the islands down there. They'd never seen like that. And I know there was. Uh, I'd never seen a monster truck pull either. So we all got to see something for the first time. But it was in Pittsburgh. They had one of those, and and, and so we took the kids up to go see a monster truck pull. So it was a that's probably the funnest evacuation for an assassination attempt you ever had. Did you get evacuated? <laughs> yeah. So it, <laughs> I didn't <it's>, think so. <laughs> Even with them surveilling our, well, let's go ahead and just get down that road. So even with them surveilling the house and, uh, and we had that P if you remember that PTAR system that first started up, it was a, it was a system for reporting for, it was a, it was a, yeah, that's the sound we all made it. It was a, it was, it was a program in DEA so that the SACs, the special agents in charge, and they would go all the way up to the assistant administrators or what have you. It was a method for, from the field, the really important cases, the ones you would consider like an OSADEF case or really good cases, they were kept up to date like right there on the spot, what you're doing in the field. And so, but so that PTAR system had just started when we got down there. This was all documented. So we were documenting everything in these reports, but went to PTARs. We had multiple, before the assassination attempt, we had multiple sources of information and confidential informants come in and said, hey, these guys are going to come for you once you get to their hierarchy. And we made it perfectly clear to DA management that these guys are, and, they, and their response was, you kids have been watching too many movies. That'll never oh, happen. Yeah, you gotta love that. Oh man. Yeah, and so and you know, so when that so when this all happens, it, I mean, it, it really wasn't a not to see Holly hindsight or anything, but it was not a surprise when that when this whole thing came down. They machine gunned that car. We'd been waiting for something like that to happen for a year and a half, and uh, but no. So but they dropped the ball. And like I said, I this is not a this is not a uh, uh, an indictment for DEA because I the bosses I've had. Before and after, phenomenal, unbelievable men and women, unbelievable. Um, but you know, if you're that that right space or wrong wrong place in space and time, and something bad like that happens, and so yeah, I, all I can say is management dropped the ball, uh, and uh, no, so they it took them I think almost four or five days to get on hell off the island, and his family. Um, they never even offered to take my wife off the island, and so after that, and then and then we have and then the bad guys get let go. Uh, they get out on bond and whatever and all that. And so ultimately I had to walk into the office of my boss who I, I like my, my group supervisor, but I had to say, listen, I don't understand. I mean, I'm still a fairly new agent. I'm very respectful. I'm not being a, I'm not being an a-hole, you know, but I walked in my boss's office and I said, I don't understand. I don't even understand what's happening here. I said, but uh, if they don't get my wife off the Island in the next two days, I'm going to turn in my badge and I'm going to walk right into Fox news or whoever gives a shit and, uh, and have a sit down about, cause there's a lot of corruption that happened down there that nobody was talking about. That nobody wanted to say anything about all the way into the U.S. Attorney's office, and uh, and so I and I said that and, and Jack knew I liked him and I like Jack and I said so you can mince my words to the sack or you can tell him exactly how I said it but this is what's going to happen and they had my wife off the island in about a day and a half but that's what it took it's, it, and like I said not an indictment for DEA because my experience throughout with everything else uh, everywhere else I've been like in those shootings that I was in treated like gold. But that right there, that was one of those ones that, uh, yeah, that, that I'm, it's still a head shaker for, for a lot of us about how that happened. But ultimately, I was there for another, about another month and change. And at that point in time, we had a wiretap up and running. Um, and they, they, came over the, they came over the wiretap. And what they had called, they'd called uh, my partner and I, uh, Majito and I, they had called us the twin gunmen. That was their phrase for us. Because everywhere we went that, you know, Majito and I went, we had our sub guns, M4s. Because we were always ready to get into it. I mean, these guys had these guys had AK forty seven full autos. We had good information. They had belt fed weapons, possibly explosives. Uh, th that's the bad guys. So I mean, we were always. Re but anyway, they referred to us as the twin gunmen. But they came over a wire and they said uh, they, they knew that they knew that my partner was off the island, but they knew I was still there. And they said uh, on the on the wire, they said get the get the get the lone gunman or whatever. And so I got a call from uh, I got a call from from the office. I was off that night like at two o'clock in the morning, I was back at my place and I got the call and they said, what are you doing? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good to go. And they're like, well, be ready at nine o'clock in the morning. We've got plane tickets. You're out. They just said some things on the wire that says they're coming. So that was that. Wow. You know, it's, and, and I don't know if you know this or not, Rick, but um, when Javier was down in Colombia, Bogota, 
twice they got information that the Sicario was on their way to his apartment to kill him. The first time they called him and said, hey, you know, where are you at? Well, they called him in his apartment, so that's where he is because we didn't have cell phones back then. But uh, the boss told him, said, you got your gun? He's like, yeah, why do I need a gun? They said, get in, the, get in your G car, keep your eyes open and get to the embassy immediately. Sicario was on the way to meet you. What did he do so with he does three and, girls in his apartment? <laughs> had to get them out first. <laughs> but, he, you know, he makes the embassy. And so what do they do? You, you would think they'd evacuate him. They moved him into another apartment. And then it happened later, several months later again. They had to move him again. And even when I was in Miami, we locked up uh, some Haitians with 500 keys of Coke. And as they're going through trial, uh, the DEA-based radio operator got a recorded phone call from somebody saying they were going to put a hit on me as I was going into the courthouse in Miami. And and my and DEA's instructions were, keep your eyes open, be careful, take a different route home every day. <laughs> so, okay, <yeah>. gee, okay. <laughs> what? Well, you know, something else that should have been, a, it should have been a warning, a warning light for me is when I came onto Island, I, they had the, the moving company finally gets there with the, with the goods to the, uh, to my condo. And, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a team of Rastafarians and, and whatever, and, and kids and what have you, they're all locals. They come in and then they give me my paperwork and right at the top of the invoice, it says Dr- drug enforcement administration. And so everybody on that Island knows where the DEA guy lives before you even, you're only there for like a, about a week and a half and they know where you, so that was how dunce, that was another dunce move on the part of uh, whoever the, that was, I mean, because now everybody knows this point of pride to know where the DEA and ATF and the FBI people are and all that on those islands. Oh, yeah. And they don't have to even work for it. They don't have to follow you home from the federal building or try to catch you unawares or whatever. They know immediately where you're, where you're at. Have your number. They just stop by and have coffee with you. Yeah. And I would say, I forgot to mention, you know, when they finally, when they finally pulled the plug and said, get out, um, I left, you know, I left at nine o'clock in the morning that next morning, sometime in the early morning hours, they hit the condo right down below. I had a really big condo, like a second and third floor condo. And then there's a smaller condo um, underneath me. But uh, they came in and they hit that condo underneath me. They, they had been watching from an angle. We knew where they'd been surveilling. There's only a couple of places you could surveil the, my place from. And one was a hilltop that had a bad angle. But yep, they hit the place down below me that night after I left. And it would have been Holy bad. If, cow. If they, and if they tried to, if, you know, I will say I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not the biggest badass in the world, but I would tell you that, uh, I, I do a lot of shooting, a lot of tactical stuff and competition stuff and everything else. And I had a lot of things in that, in that condo, uh, I'll just say several, several big automatic weapons, not nine millimeter, two twenty three. I had some pretty good firepower in there, um, and whatever. And also it was a hardened, it was a hardened condo. I had done some things and whatever you would take, you'd have to have a chop saw in about 15 minutes to get into the place. Wow. And, uh, Good but, you, but if man. they had hit, if they had hit when I was at home, they'd still be talking about that for the next, I don't know, hundred years on St. Croix. But, uh, yeah, no, they hit the place down below, which is just a kind of a wimpy door, wimpy thing. They went in there, didn't steal anything. Luckily the kid that lived below us, he wasn't home. He was somewhere off Island or whatever, but, uh, they didn't steal one thing. And they went in there, they rifled through a couple things and didn't take one thing and were out. So. See, personally, I would have used sharks with frickin' laser beams to, uh, you know, defend my uh, territory there along with, uh, you know, nothing like a good healthy 7.62 or 5.56, you know, or, you know, 30 caliber to just get, it's an attention getter. You know, if nothing else, it it does get your attention. 7.62 in this, in this case. Yeah, I had a, yeah, I had a, I had a, a full auto 308, full, a full auto 7.62 by 50. Anyway, yeah, so I had, a, I had some pretty good stuff going on. I had my M4 sub gun. Benelli uh, M4 Super 90 had some pretty good stuff going on in there, but they would have really had to work to get into that house. It's all masonry with those big, lo- they had like the storm louvers that you see in the Caribbean. When you have like a really bad hurricane, you've got these metal storm louvers, but we're on a second and third floor. So first, then they had to climb, they had to climb up a ladder to even get to the windows. And then you've got steel shuttered windows. So the only way into that place was to come through that crazy armored up, up armored two door system in the front. But, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, and you know, I, I will say too, going back, uh, that, that, that month and a half that I was there after, um, after the, after the event had happened with the assassination attempt, uh, you know, DEA didn't put me someplace else or move me around the Island or whatever. I went back to the same place I'd been surveilling for the last year and a half. And, uh, so the way I, to, to the way I would do that is I would drive a different route home every day. I'd, I'd speed through places you shouldn't speed through to wash my tail. And then when I'd get anywhere near, I was in a, a pretty decent sized complex and whatever I'd park in different places on this mountainside. I'd never park in front of my place. I'd park different places every day for that 30 days. And then I'd hike through the rainforest. And then I'd sit in the rainforest with my weapons and wash my door and smell and you know, smell for pot, smell for people smoking a cigarette waiting for me, like you know, hiding down below, watch around. And then that's how I'd go home every night. Every night, that's how I went home. If I went to the store well, to I'm, get food, 
Oh yeah. If I went, if I had to go to the grocery store to you know pick up some groceries, when I first went to the island, I tried to look like some kind of expat. You know, I had I've never had like a thick head of hair since I was in the army. I think the the helmet rubbed that off, but nevertheless, I tried to have like you know kind of like shit ass clothes on and look like kind of like a, like a crumb bum when I'd go around St. Croix. But after that, I'm like, well, everybody knows who, what's going on now anyway. So I'd go to the I'd go to the grocery store. I had full kit, had my M4 slung up, two handguns, some other things, um, full on rig. And I figured, because if I'm going to get into it, at least everybody's going to know who got into it. And that's how I'd walk in. And people would be uncomfortable. You'd see like tourists. And they'd be like, what? I'm going to, oh, <laughs> I'm going to a different tourist destination next year. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's how that lasts. I'm, I have to go to Beirut. Maybe I'll go to Beirut next year. It'd be better. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no. So that's how that last 30 days went until I finally left out of there. So you're the reason the cruise ship starts stopped coming to St. Croix. <laughs> <laughs> There's Rick in the no, yeah. grocery shop again. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to go someplace safer, like downtown Chicago. You know, that's where I think yeah. I'm gonna go on vacation. <laughs> yeah, right. Great story to say. Welcome to DEA. Yeah. I'm telling you. Well, hey, just to back up a step about the cruise ships. So it was. It, this is how bad it was. The the island we had a Havenso oil refinery on Saint Croix, and I think they said I'm terrible with numbers, but I think I think that they refined over 35 percent of all the jet fuel used by the U.S. military, aside from other fuels they refined there on Saint Croix. And so when the cruise ships pulled out and said we're not coming, and that was all of them. Like I, I don't know if it was like Princess or you know all the major ones. They said we're not, sorry, you know we're not coming. They actually tried to try to sweeten up a deal and say, hey, listen, we'll fuel you up for pennies on the dollar in our refinery if you still come back to the island. And they're like, nah, we're good. That's how bad it yeah. was. Wow. It's a shame, too. Wow. It's a shame. And I would say this goes to not not just St. Croix, but I, and I want to backtrack to Pittsburgh as well on this one. But, you know, when you go into these areas that look bad, whether it's a, like a bad inner city neighborhood or whether it's a place like St. Croix where you see all that ugly. But the reality of it is. 70% of the people there are unbelievably good people. Even like in some of the neighborhoods you see in the bigger cities, like I know my experience in Pittsburgh, um, policing the second most violent part of Pittsburgh is that the majority of the people there, they are, I mean, you make fast friends and they are good people. They're just in a bad spot, either economically or their whole family lives there or whatever. But St. Croix was the same thing. Uh, we made more friends there, I think, than we did when we were in Yakima, Washington, when it came to outside of law enforcement friends. Well, hell yeah, because but, you weren't shooting anybody in St. Croix. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we were just getting shot at. <laughs> shot at. That's a difference. Now you're a victim. Now, hey, I'm getting That's shot right. at, you know? Well, so now, but Alaska came after St. Croix, right? It did. Yeah, because I was going to say that this whole episode is what prepared you to take on that grizzly bear. It's like, yeah, I've, I've, I've dealt with this kind of shit before people coming for me. I got you. So, but so you're down there. You said you did two years and some change. What was the, that was, you were kind of talking about that was the final kind of uh, straw that broke the camel's back that you said you had to go somewhere. That was it. So they pulled, they pulled, uh, they pulled me off island and I had, uh, they, they, what they do with, with, no matter what, is they always give you like, I think it was three, you can choose three places when they say it's time to go. You can choose three places that are, uh, they're like small, like small field offices where you're like a, you know, like either like a, uh, like a resident office or a, uh, or a district office or, and then you get two, ch two choices that are like big field division offices. And then they generally try to figure out a place for you to go from those five picks. And so luckily for me, uh, there was a spot coming open in, in uh, Anchorage. It wasn't open yet, but they did a couple, pulled a couple. One of the supervisors up here <laughs> had known about the shootings in Yakima and said, hey, we got to have that kid up here. So, uh, but he'd been a supervisor in Seattle for a while, but this fellow found out that I was leaving St. Croix. And so he, uh, he kind of pulled a couple strings and I ended up being able to get up here into, into Anchorage. But one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life, got to thank, his name was Tony, Tony Grotens. I got to thank that guy because he did me one of the biggest favors anybody's done me in my entire adult life. But I got to tell you, you go from St. Croix to wear a pair of shorts, you know, some tank tops, and now you're going to Alaska. Could you have picked two divergent, you know, um, weather patterns, you know, two divergent environments to, to, I mean, okay, I could see St. Croix going to Florida, St. Croix, maybe even going to, you know, California, but Alaska. Your your observations are correct. My my tan lines, my or my my bikini lines were gone pretty quick. When we came up here and, uh, and, and I, you know, the other thing too, I'd say, you know, the, the, when it comes to like culture shock or whatever, it, uh, so we, you know, I went from having blue azure, you know, at the blue waters and the blue skies and the, and the tropical greens and flowers. And we came up here, I think it was in like March, what's still winter here in March for the house hunting trip came up here and it's all, it's all snow and black rock. 
And that's those are your two colors and maybe some sky, but usually, but yes, to come from that. But I know when I first got to the, to the anchors district office, I go to meet everybody and I'm walking around. This is the end of a dead of winter, like a long, hard winter. And I had never believed in, I always thought seasonal affective disorder was like a cop out or I just never really believed it. Well, I believe it now because I, we get walk around that office and I'm talking to people and I'm like, oh no, this seems kind of off. People seem a little bit off, like, just like, I don't know, they seem like down and off. And, and I, but then when I came back and worked until June, everybody's gregarious and funny and they're back to being normal. But, uh, that was the other culture shock is going from that sunlight all the time to where you do have a lot of darkness and you can see the difference in people at the end of a long Alaskan winter. I mean, it's not like they're zombies or anything, but you can definitely see a difference in personality if you're not taking your vitamin D. Uh, and what have you, and, and sitting in front of a sunlamp or getting out in cross-country skiing where you can get some sunlight. But you could definitely see that difference in behavior when you came up here. You know, you went from blue waters to blue balls up there, didn't you? <laughs> oh, man, I'm telling you, it'll make you believe it. <laughs> yep. Oh, the boys, the boys are cold. Well, the cold, so there's a little, there's a bunch of rules you have to follow when you first come up here, especially if you're going to travel around the state, like up into Nome in the dead of winter or Fairbanks or what have you. And uh, the coldest that I've seen it up here was minus 54. Um, and that's cold enough that if you, I found out that when you go, if you have to pee while you're outside, first of all, it's a 25 minute task. Cause you have to get, you know, three, you know, three or four or five layers of clothing off to get there. But then when you finally do, it never hits the ground. It, it, you, when you're, when you go to take that whiz, it kind of like just turns into magic pixie dust. And I don't know, I, maybe oh Greta Thunberg's <laughs> crying down there someplace for, for global warming. Cause you just contributed to it. But nevertheless, yeah, it just, it, it's so cold that it just vaporizes, let alone a pot of water, you put a pot of water up into the air. It just goes, makes a funny sound like a, before too, and a just, yeah. Oh yeah. The tires on your car. You know, I, I can't imagine my minus 54. I can't even imagine. I think plus 54 is chilly. Uh, oh, it's, it is, it's, it, it's something else. Yeah. The tires on your car flatten. So like when your car sits overnight, you have to plug it in, by the way. I don't know if you ever saw the plugs up here. They look like the old drive-in movie theater for you, for youngsters, probably don't know what that is, but the old drive-in movie theater type things. Well, they're plug-ins for cars and you'll have them at hotels, any place where you're going to park up for a while to plug your car in. They have, you have your little blanket heaters for your engine block and for your batteries and whatever and all that. But, but yeah, so they have that going on, but, but your tires are flat. Like if, when your car sits here all night, your tires where it's sitting that part of them is flat. And so for the first half mile of your, when you go to pull out for the first half mile, it's like being in a Fred Flintstone mobile or something where it's like flop, 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 flop until the tires warm up enough where that flat spot goes out of them. But it's just a different world. If you, if you do have, if you're graced enough to have longer hair, um, yeah. Uh, so more, you, you definitely have to follow this rule with that luscious head of hair you have, but if you wash your hair and, it, and it's still kind of wet and then you walk out to your, uh, to your, uh, uh, mailbox, like in the morning when it's minus 25, 35 out, your hair can actually crack off. Like for people who have really long hair like gals, yeah, you better come in and wait for a second before you try to, to deal with it. Because if you try to comb it out or whatever, it can actually just crack off. That's how cold it gets when it's like down to minus 35 and, and whatever. It's different. Yeah, definitely different. Here's a little weather factoid for you. At what temperature does Fahrenheit and Celsius mean the same? Zero. Nope. 32. Nope. Minus 40. There isn't one. Yeah, there is. Minus, minus 40. 40. Minus 40 Fahrenheit is the same temperature as minus 40 centigrade. Okay. There you go. There's there's like 10 seconds of our lives. We'll never get back again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I'm when I'm out there sitting, my testicles, when my testicles are frozen to a rock when I'm cross-country well, skiing, wait a minute. Break, whoa, I'll remember whoa. that fact. I'll remember that How fact. How did we get to I'll testicles re- on a rock from <laughs> minus 40? What are you doing? Are you that lonely out there? Do the rocks look that good <laughs> oh, after funny. a few weeks? <laughs> You know what? I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying I'll keep my mouth shut now, Mom. <laughs> but I'll remember that fact. Nevertheless, I, nevertheless, I remember that factoid whenever I'm sitting out there cross country skiing and I'm stuck to a rock somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Truth or dare. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to know. Hey, hey, listen, Morg, I don't even, you know, the, the, the man to woman ratio up here back in like the 1940s and fifties, it was like, I think even into the seventies, it was still, I forget the numbers, but like 70, 30 or something. But but really, I mean, when you look back, I mean, it was a lonely place up here for dudes like back in the day. The, the, the numbers up here are, are pretty, you know, pretty normal now. But like up until the 70s or 80s, the, the odds were, and I think the, the saying up here was the odds are good, but the goods are odd or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, the, the male to female ratio was a very scary thing back in the day. And you were worried about somebody saying the bitch word on here to your mom and hearing that. Listen to oh, what you're talking man. about now. Now <laughs> you're get, talking about your I, nuts being frozen <laughs> to a rock. What are you taking a dump at minus? Who? I mean, you can't hold it till you get somewhere. 
Do I get final? Do I do I get final editing rights on this one? <laughs> Hell no. Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. You, two two words come up: t- time and memorial. Yeah, uh-huh. you know Rambo's tough. Rambo took a few craps in the jungle while you know when he escaped the jail there and uh, and you know was hiding in the mountains. So hey, you know that's we we would expect no less from somebody named Rambo. But so let's talk about you move up to Alaska, and this is where you spent the rest of your career. Is that correct? Uh, correct. So when you when you move back up there, I mean, obviously it's a huge adjustment between St. Croix and this. What was the hardest thing to adapt to going to? I mean, sometimes it sounds obvious like it's just the weather, but like you were even saying, the, all the things you have to learn that only people who live there know. You know, it's like going out, you know, even with hair just a little bit. Yeah, Murph, you don't want to try this. Um, well, I can't don't know. afford to lose anymore. Yeah, can't, can't afford to lose anymore. But, um, you know, what, what were some of the biggest uh paradigm shifts for you going from St. Croix up to there? Was it, was it the way the communities worked? Was it the way law enforcement worked? You know, what were some big shifts for you? This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Well, actually, it was in the positive. Uh, you, you know, for so long, you, there was no anonymity. You couldn't go in public. You couldn't do other without, we call it like pooping in your own kitchen where you're seeing people you dealt with, like even in, even in Yakima, you couldn't go see a movie without seeing a family member or a friend of somebody that you had just smashed, you know, smashed, you'd gotten arrested. And so, but the first thing, you know, Anchorage is a decent sized city, even though once you leave it, there's not a whole lot out there, but uh, no, it was a good paradigm shift in that I finally felt like I had some anonymity to do things and nobody knew who you were to be, you know, to have to worry about that. The other thing that happened as well is I was lucky enough that the fellow whose position I was taking, he was a traveling show for DEA up here. And so he did like he did casework in Anchorage and that's what I ended up. I did some casework in Anchorage, but most of my casework was done. It would be like if you worked in uh, if you worked in Atlanta, Georgia, but you were doing casework in New York. That's how big the state is. You know, when you look at how long and how large Alaska is working out of the Anchorage district office. If I did a case down in Ketchikan, which is coastal Alaska down in the south, you know, way down south, that would be like if you were in Atlanta doing a case in Miami. That's or that's how far apart they are. Or like New York all the way to Raleigh-Durham or whatever. That's how, so you have to fly to get there on an airliner and come back. And so that was really great for me because I was able to do really good casework. Um, and especially when you look at some of the smaller places, those impact cases, and some of the impact cases would go all the way to the southwest border. So even though you're starting small in a little Alaska, in a little Alaska coastal fishing town, um, you would have cases that took you right down to the border or across the border. And so, but I love that aspect of being finally like, kind of like being like a secret squirrel dude where you, I'm working there, but I'm not living there. So they don't know me. They don't see me. Uh, and, 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 and all my, all my police friends, they love the fact that the federal fist could come down on these places because the, a lot of these smaller towns, the bad guys had been there for time immemorial. They had, I wouldn't say they got away with it, but you know, policing in a small town is a bit different. And so, and then when they did get time in Alaska, even though it's, you'd think it would be super conservative up here, it's kind of a weird mix. But uh, yeah, the sentencing structure wasn't all that great. And I'd call it a slap on the hand a lot of the time for these guys for drug charges and even for assaults and, and what have you. But we'd come in there and all of a sudden now they're looking at 20 years. And, and that resonates, especially when you come in. We had one, uh, we had one investigation. I did this one with the uh, Ketchikan Police Department. Those guys did a tremendous job down there for being a small town and having everybody bracketed to make this thing happen. But we arrested, I think it was almost uh, over a dozen people in that, in that town. And one day we went down in Blackhawks. We had two Blackhawk helicopters meet us in Juneau, had to fly from Anchorage to Juneau. I met a couple of my Blackhawk buddy flyers and we took the Blackhawks down to, uh, down to Ketchikan. And an hour and 50 minutes later, we had, uh, I think 14, 14 people in custody and on the way back to federal court in Juneau. And, uh, but that they, they were telling me for the months after that, every bad guy in Ketchikan that we didn't arrest, it wasn't a part of that. They thought they were going to be a part of it because being federal and they moved out of town. They said, you could not get a seat on an airplane or on the Alaska Marine highway, which is a big ferry that goes down to Washington from Alaska to take people back and forth. But they said that like for the next, like I guess like next two months, like every berth was filled heading South for all these people to get out of there. Cause they figured they were in the next wave of coming in. Cause we came in black in black Blackhawks and then just snatched them. Like two hours later, we're gone with them. But uh, those kind of cases are really rewarding <laughs> yeah, because, 
Oh yeah. And you know, and I would tell you as well, you know, that we had one, I remember in, in particular on that case, there was this big fat piece of S uh, pedo. Um, it was one of the bad guys on that case where we came in in the helicopters. He was a tubby. I mean, he looked like a movie pedophile and he'd fly, you know, he'd fly young girls with methamphetamine and all that. He was the one guy out of 14 that decided to try to run and fight back. He decided he wanted to run and fight. And, uh, yeah, so we all kind of know what happened from there with that. This guy wasn't used to that. And so we get him and, uh, he actually was, he was, he was crying on the helicopter. He was crying. And so those are the kind of things that make every push-up you ever did in the military, every college credit hour, you know, that you had to languish through, um, and everything you went through in law enforcement, when you, when you get to deal with somebody like that and you know, they're going away for a long time and you see them cry, that is your payment. I could have gone without three or four or five paychecks and eaten ramen noodles for about a quarter or two just for that moments like that. Yeah. There's, there's a, another similar event when you go in and clean up, uh, not necessarily the biggest drug traffickers, but most, the most violent. I was on a Met team for two and a half years out of Atlanta. And you go in these neighborhoods and these people have terrorized these people. And you go in and build a case on them. And the, on Roundup Day, when you come driving out in your cavalcade with, you know, 20 police cars and they, the neighbors can see in the back windows that these guys are going to jail and they come out on the street and applaud you as you're driving down the street. That's a good feeling. It, it really is. And, you know, I, to backtrack a bit, uh, we, we talked about the reasons you go into law enforcement in the very beginning of the first uh, episode and all that. I know that I said that a lot of it comes from popular culture and things you grew up with, kind of the worries and values from your family and all that. But I know I, I've always been a small, like, like, well, as a kid, I was really, a sh- I was really short, mi- a midget. And, uh, and most of my friends were smaller kids, too. And we saw bullying like you wouldn't believe. And I'm glad it happened. I mean, because it, it builds character. But I'll tell you, my entire life, one of the reasons that I went, one of the other reasons I went to law enforcement, why I wanted to stay an agent in the field um, and continue doing that is because, I, you know, I mean, I just, I hate bullies. I hate people that, that, that uh, they enjoy hurting people. It's like, it's like their shtick and whatever. But I mean, I have always just, I've always had it out for bullies. And it's watching my friends get bullied. And then as I got older, seeing other things happen and whatever. And then going into law enforcement, when you're watching from afar, people victimizing each other. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the primary reasons I stayed as a, as a field, as a field operational agent, because you just hate them. Absolutely hate them. And every time you can tune one up and get them where they need to go, that's just, uh, makes that, it's almost like when you fall in love for the first time, you get that warm feeling in your heart. When you get one of those violators that is like that pedophile or some of the ones that have you know, done their things, um, it just makes you feel warm inside. I was going to say, speaking of warm feelings, you don't get many warm feelings up in Alaska uh, when your balls are stuck to a rock. Um, so, but we will, uh, <laughs> I have to edit that again. Good gosh. There we go. Mom, hey, if, no. if mom's, mom, that's an allegory. That was, a, I don't even know what an allegory is right now, but mom, that was an allegory. I, I didn't really mean that. I doubt your mom's going to listen to this. You think she will? I don't think I'm going to forward the link now. <laughs> now What's your email you know, address? We'll do it for you. A, you know what? She's a she's a she's a gregarious uh, old old Italian gal. School teacher. She'll like it. She'll think it's funny. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm still in the will. Well, so so how many years did you? So um, when was your final year? Uh, when did you move to Alaska? And when was your final year with DEA? Yeah. So arrived in Alaska in 2004 and then retired in 2021. Because I was thinking there was a couple cases up there. One of them was a guy named, actually, um, believe it was Robert Hansen or Richard Hansen. It was one of the serial killers, but he died. No, Robert Hansen, same one as the FBI trader. And then there was that Israel, or Israel Keys, I think his name was. Did you ever have, uh, it, he was operating in and around Anchorage. Did you ever hear about any of those cases while you were up there? I did. Alaska is a very small place. And uh, so my, I think it's probably my first couple of weeks up here. One of the task force agents with our, with our you know, group here in, in Anchorage um, asked me if I'd go down to Spring Creek, which is a, was where, the, where the real bad people in, in Anchorage are sent for state prison. Spring Creek is down in Seward, Alaska. It's a pretty good drive, about a three and a half, four hour drive in winter to get down there, four hour drive. So uh, we used to do an interview. So we went down to interview somebody and we're in kind of like, I remember we're looking through this window down onto like a, uh, the cafeteria area while we're waiting to go interview this person. And I see this one broken down looking turd sitting down there at a table. He's in a wheelchair. He's all by himself. And he just looks like a, just like a, just, uh, just like a little broken down little man. And he's all by himself. There's no one else around. And I, I asked one of the, one of the jailers or one of the prison guards, what, what's the deal with that guy down there? And he's a, well, he goes, that's Butcher Baker. And I'm so new to the state. I, I hadn't read any, had read the book or none about the guy, but it was your Hanson guy. It was that Butcher Baker guy. He was the, he was the fellow that um, back in, I think it was what, like the late seventies, eighties, 
he was taking yeah, money. I, I think up in the 90s, yeah. And um, John Cusack played him in a movie. I mean, did a really good job. I think the Alaska trooper who kind of led that investigation, I was, we were trying to track him down at one point to see if we could interview him. But that was an interesting movie. And uh, it was just, it just showed you um, how the difference being in Alaska changed how you could do. I mean, planes are a huge part of life up there, right? You know, you fly, you got to fly places. There's no, it's not like, hey, let's get in the car and drive. It's like, no, um, that would be a three day trip. We're just going to hop in our plane. And, you know, which kind of leads me to the question you know, a lot of people have, what percentage of people in law enforcement do you think were pilots? Well, well troopers, I, I mean, probably. I would say probably 40% of the troopers are pilots up here. Um, but to give you an idea of, you talk about private aircraft and how, how planes play an integral role in Alaskans' lives, there's a lake out there by the uh, internet, by International Anchorage International called Lake Hood. There are more float planes and more personally owned planes on that one lake by the airport out there than the entire lower 48 combined. If that gives you an idea of how heavy this state is for personally owned aircraft, more at one lake by the airport than the rest of the lower 48 combined. But yeah, so that Hanson guy, yeah, he's the one, he's the one that, uh, for people that don't know out there, he would, he's a little unassuming little baker. Uh, he had a little baking shop. He looked like a kind of a little wimpy kind of guy, but he would kidnap prostitutes and then brutalize them, getting get them into his super cub. You know, he had a little thing to tie them down so they couldn't move in the cub. And then he'd take them out in the middle of nowhere, land the plane and, and, and kill them out there. I mean, I know a lot of people said they hunted them. I don't know how far that would be if he'd like chase them through the woods, but I know he'd take them out there and that's where he'd kill them and leave the bodies. And Ultimately, he ended up yeah, getting caught by pretty yeah, They were still guys. identifying victims with DNA after 37 years. I think they tied a couple more to him. So, well, I can tell you. So, we go on to Israel Keys. Uh, this is this is when I first came up here. This would have been about probably two, well, a couple years after I arrived in Alaska. My task force that I was on was an interdiction group out of our main office. So, we had a sub office right at the airport. And so, during lunchtime, that's where I'd go to do my run. There was a coastal trail. That goes along the water really pretty. And so it, at lunchtime, I'd take my, I'd just run from the office and hit that coastal trail and go. Well, this would have been about probably 2006, maybe uh, 2000 and, yeah, 2006, 2007. I, and I, I, like I said, I run every other day. I ran that trail and I'm out running and I go past, I, this guy's walking towards me. And you know, I would tell people always follow your instincts, always follow your intuitions. If you have a bad feeling about something, it, it's not just Han Solo and uh, and Luke Skywalker on the Millennium Falcon getting in and Obi Wan getting near the Death Star when you're like I have a bad feeling about this. I'm running down the trail. I have this guy walking towards me. It's a broad, it's a bright day, middle of daytime, walking towards me, and I always carry my 45 and two magazines and this little combat knife. So I always have it with me, so I'm armed. I'm running along the trail. I see this guy walking towards me, and he is looking at me like like a predatory animal. Even though he's not like growl or like, he, the, the look in his eyes and just the look on his face, he's looking like through me, like looking right as I'm coming. And that, that look does not change. And as I go, I said, hi, so I'm always friendly to everybody, you know, and uh, just see what, almost like a ping, like, like, a, like one ping Vasily in, in, uh, in Red October to get a feel for him and see how they're, you know, see what their reaction is going to be. But I run by the guy and I'm like, I'm like, hey, how you doing? And he just looks at me and nods his head with that same predatory look. And I, I can tell you that in the, in the 20 years I've been up here, um, I've done it, I think twice where I turn around and run backwards until I don't see him anymore. I turned around and ran backwards for like 50 yards backwards until that guy was around the corner. And just because I had that feeling of something was really, really wrong with this guy came around the corner and there's this college age girl that's just walking. And so I stopped and I had my badge on a lanyard. So I, I pulled it out well before I got to her and I said, Hey, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to scare you or anything, but, uh, there's a guy that just went past me and I, there's something wrong or something really off with that guy. You might want to walk it the way you came from, maybe go that way. Cause there's something wrong. And she was very nice. And, and she was like, well, I, I really appreciate it. She goes, I think I'm just going to go to my car. And we were parked in the same lot. So I went ahead and walked back with her to her car. She left, I left. And then it was like six years later or whatever, when it all started coming to light about him and they had his picture up and he had admitted to, uh, going to that trail and trying to find a place that he could kill a couple people with a suppressed rifle. And ultimately he did. He went back there and uh, he, uh, he, fa- he was going to kill a couple in their car on the trailhead for that. And he had a suppress- he made a suppressor, a homemade suppressor for a rifle. He sat up on him getting ready to do it. Well, one of the airport police officers that cover that area pulled in a patrol car to check them out. He admitted to FBI and, to, and to APD that he is going to, in fact, was going to kill all three of them. And then a, a, a second police car pulled in and he pulled back and didn't do it. So he was stalking that trail as a like a surveillance to figure out where he could set up how he could kill somebody along that trail and that was him of of i mean i know it seems it seems uh uh like fantastical but actually ran into that guy and 
And you're, so all these years later, I mean, or like when you saw him and then you saw that picture later, I mean, there's no doubt in your mind it was this same guy. No, no doubt at all. And right about that same time, he, he wasn't long in there before he, ki- he killed himself in jail. He, yeah, he double redundant. He and hung himself. Yeah. And hung himself. Yeah. So he double redundant it kind of like his little joke. I think it's his little joke that he gets to take his secrets to the grave with him because they suspect he had killed some other people in other states. He had, he had murder kits that had cash yeah, up in other states. And, all over the United States. Yeah. Man, you know, it's one of those things, right? It's that instinct that, you know, the sixth sense, you know, like that movie, you know, where it's just, isn't it amazing how people like that put off vibes? I mean, it's, was it, was it his look? I mean, it, the way you were describing it, it almost felt like you could sense the evil just as you're going by this guy. Not only is it the look, but it's like, you get that feeling is like, man, the hair's on the back of my neck. Not that you have much hair, but what hair you had was, uh, you know, on the back of your neck, you know, what's going up, but it's like, but yeah, it just, I've never been, you know, next to a serial killer like that, but you do get next to people who are just freaking evil. And it was it was it just that feeling of evil just besides the look or what really locked you in on this guy to say there's something wrong? Well, you know, their thing too is I knew that he was sizing me up. I mean, I, it wasn't just that 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 feeling like this there's something really really wrong with this guy. You could tell that there was just something off with this guy that was really really bad. But um it was the way that he looked at me. Um, it, he, he looked at me like maybe I'm looking at somebody that I'm getting ready to interview, you know, for a, you know, in a, in a criminal investigation that was like, it just, he, he was sizing me up. He was trying to figure out what I was about. There was no doubt about it, man. Oof. So when you saw that picture, <laughs> you know, six years later, was it instantaneous? Did you recognize the picture right away? It was. Yeah. I looked at that and I'm like, there's no way. And I, I mean, I had to think about it for a couple of, I thought about it for a couple of days and then went back to it and looked at it and like, yep. That was him. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Dang. I know. Well, good thing you were armed, man. When you were running backwards, did you catch him turn around looking at you? He glanced back one time. Glanced one back one time and then just kept on walking, never looked back again. No, I was going to say, you went running armed, not, I mean, a lot of people, they're armed all the time up there, not just because of bad people, right? But because of the wildlife, you know, you know, like you say, you never know if you're going to run into a bear or something else, right? So going around armed, and if I remember right, I saw, I think the commissioner, when I met him one time, or may may have been on one of those episodes, but uh, I understand that one of the traffic laws up there is if you're stopped by the police, it's okay to carry a gun. You just have to let them know you're armed at that time or that you're carrying a weapon. Is that still correct? That is correct. You can carry without a permit up here. You can carry concealed, but you do have to, if a police officer pulls you over, you have to tell them where the weapon is and, and all that. Yes. Okay. Man. So, um, you, you, you finished out, um, what, what led you to punch out? Was it just that time you have enough years in, or did you have something else you wanted to do? Well, it was a combination. I mean, it really, most of the things I do in my life is like a, like a BB and a gallon jug. I just make a decision and go with it and make it simple. But uh, there was actually a lot of reasons for retiring. One of the primaries was they were making us get vaccinated. And feel how you, feel how you will about that whole vaccination thing, and, and especially looking back now and looking at where we are today. But I, I didn't want to get that vaccination. And when they put that moratorium down, or that you're going you're gonna to get vaccinated, uh, I, I didn't want to get vaccinated. And I'm, if that's what the, if that's, if that, if that was a road they were going to take to make us do that, then I think it's about pretty close to time for me being able to get out of there. I didn't have any jobs on the horizon. Um, I, I, uh, I write and I'm an editor for a magazine, uh, that fire firearms news magazine It's the oldest magazine, gun magazine in the country. Um, but I'm a, so my last couple of years of DEA, it's hard to get, it's hard for DEA to allow you to have outside employment. You have to go through a lot of hoops to be able to do anything. I think they were day drinking that day when I sent the request to write. I, I was approached by a couple of people, you know, that work with a magazine to write for them. And I told them I didn't have any high hopes it was going to happen, but I, I went ahead and did my thing with DEA and they actually let me do it. So for the last two years of my career, I was doing the writing and doing editing for that magazine and all that, but it's, it's more of a hobby than a, than a full-time job. And uh, so really, I had nothing on the horizon, but there was, uh, but yeah, so I retired partly it was because of the vaccination. And then also, I think it's when, when you're with a bunch of younger, you know, younger agents and you start using references, even if you're using like a major reference from our time period and they just look at you like, Burr, you know, <laughs> they don't get it. That, I noticed, I noticed over the last four or five years that like, I'd say things and there was no reaction, no laughter. They'd look at me like that poor old, like a pariah, like that poor old man. No way, grandma, no, no way, grandpa. But, uh, there, there was a couple of different things that I knew that, uh, it was time to bang out. I knew that when I went through an entire high risk, high risk, uh, middle of three o'clock in the morning warrant with my granny glasses. Cause we've been sitting in the car for about an hour or two. And I was like reading something. And then all of a sudden we had to hit the place. When you go through the entire 
through an entire three-story house with your weapons and kicking in doors and whatever. And we finally get done and the dust is settling. And I realized I had my reading glasses down over my, like, like, like grandma Santa Claus or whatever. I had them down over my nose and I'd done, I'd done the whole work with my, with my glasses down over my nose. I realized maybe it might be time to think about, you know, passing on the reins. Yeah. See, yep. I know when I, when I'm doing speeches, I was in Montreal and Cleveland over the last two days, I was on four, four planes, uh, in two days. Um, but you can tell what the age of the audience is when you make Monty Python jokes, you make certain references and then, you know, the people laugh, but you're talking about my one imitation I do. And I think I do, it's a pretty good one. You're talking about, you know, give me one ping. So give me one ping, Vasily, one ping only, please. See, excellent. Not a bad shot. Oh yeah. yeah. Careful, Ryan. Some things don't react well to bullets, you know, <laughs> anyway, hunt for red October. Great movie. Now, well, that was good. Borg, one thing I'd say too is, I mean, I, the, the, my entire time here in Alaska with my coworkers and almost every boss I've had has been phenomenal. So it wasn't that at the very end, as far as the way the stress goes, but it, it got increasingly difficult to work, you know, with the U.S. Attorney's offices and some of the prosecutors and other parts of the, uh, the countryside up here and whatever. And, uh, and you realize that the stress that the job is creating, it's not going through a door at two o'clock in the morning. Or, or interviewing a bad guy or any of those things associated with that part of the job is having to fight a fight to be able to do your job and to, and to do and to go after people and protect the public when you're fighting the people that should be supporting you as hard as you're fighting to get a case initiated and, and go. And what I would say is, you know, I, one of the things like the last three years of my job, I was out running one night and I'm looking way up on this mountainside where there's a little red light up there. Somebody's like running a trail with a red light thing. And uh, I noticed on my right eye, that it looked weird. Like the left eye, I could see the light. My right eye, it looked shaded. Like a, there was almost like a like tint. I get back to the house. I'm, I'm looking at lights in the house and there was a perfectly round circle in my field of vision on my, on my dominant eye, on my shooting eye. And I'm like, oh boy, I'm, you know, I have all kinds of things in my head, like what it could be. So I go to a retinologist and they do their full court press on it. And he says, he goes, Ricky goes, it's, he, and he says, you're in, you're in luck. It's not, it's not like cancer. It's not this. And he names like one of those Latin, like it's like four, four or five different part Latin terms for what the problem is. And, uh, but what it was, he goes, it's, uh, it's, it's a bubble on your retina. And he goes, what causes it? It's almost like high blood pressure. He said, it's being, he's really being stressed. He said, we see this commonly in combat, in combat, uh, in combat veterans, police officers. I think it was also uh, surgeons and, and school teachers. Uh, he said that uh, we see this and what it is, it's a stress and it causes that bubble to pop on your eye. And that's what you're seeing in your field of vision. And he goes, it's, it, it, it can be, it, it, it heals itself. It can heal itself. He goes, there's three things we can do. We can do surgery, which I don't suggest. Uh, we can do medicine. I don't suggest that either. He goes, and he knew what I did for a living. Or he goes, third, you can quit being pissed off all the time. And I didn't realize, I didn't realize how, how, uh, how effing mad I was when we'd try to do something and we got shut down or they'd, they'd, you know, they'd try to push us off on a, on a case. And I mean, this involved like is involved people, you know, good people getting hurt and we're getting pushed back, pushed back by the powers that be. And that was where the pressure, that, that's where the anger was coming from. It wasn't from my coworkers or a bad boss. They were, they were, they were angels that walked the earth. Um, the, even the bad guys, it was, it was that, but so where I'm getting at with this whole, the little uh, wait, organ recital, as you get older, you talk about <laughs> all the things you have wrong with your body, uh, organ recital. The reason I'm doing my little mini organ recital on the eye problem is that, uh, so yeah, so I retire and a month and a half later it was gone and it's never come back since that, that spot that in my field of vision. So that, that right there was definitely an indicator of how angry, you know, that, that you are. And what that the effects it has physiologically on your body and whatever the, the minute you retire a month and a half later that goes away to never to return again. And if it's not the eye, then it's like a, a you know a, 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 some kind of a, a um, ulcer, or it's kind of a you know you've got some there's other it stress manifests it ways you know in many many different ways. So. All right, man. Well, look, this is like so we haven't done this before. So this is our first you know two part two part. Um, it's almost like two pack. So two part, this is our two part, four part. I don't know what to call this, Murph. We're going to have to come up with a name for the new kind of thing, you know, four part, two parter. We'll call this uh, Rick Brambo setting the standard for guests on Game of Crimes. How about that? What, what, what do you mean? They have to pull down their, their shorts and crap on a rock and get their nuts stuck to it. <laughs> how about, how about, how about something simple, something simple and elegant, like frozen no-no parts, the DEA Alaska story. I don't know. I, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I've already started writing down a couple of things. I mean, we're talking about just in your short time, you survived uh, two shootings, a grizzly bear, uh, an assassination attempt and a serial killer. I think the headline writes itself. And a moose. And a moose. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, okay, before we go, give us one more moose call. Come on, call the call 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 the boys in the yard. Come on. 
Ah, boy. All right. This is like a Vegas act. It's like a really bad Vegas act. I got two. I got to go two shows a day. All right. Here we go. <laughs> this was this is what it's come to in my life <laughs> doing, doing cow calls on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a man among men, you know, fast roping out of helicopters and in the dark of night on speedboats in the Caribbean, and now I'm doing cow calls on a podcast. Now it's frozen nuts and cow calls. Yeah. That's it. There you go. I think you got it. When Javier and I go out and do a speaking event, we tell people we used to carry guns, now we carry Sharpies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, you look, man, this has been fun. And, dude, um, I'm glad you're, I mean, you seem a little lonely up there, but I assume, you know, you're not batching it again. For, I mean, it's going to be this, your, your long, you know, not long national nightmare is going to be over here pretty soon. You're going to have company and you won't need to do cow calls, you know, to, to get somebody to come by and visit you. Right. That's right. All right. Uh, well, this, has, this has been a lot of fun, Rick. Thank yeah. you very much for coming on the show, brother. Oh, it's, it's, it's been my pleasure. Really has. All right. Well, this has been fun. Don't you guys go anywhere. Everybody else stay tuned for the final debrief. I wasn't joking. Did you see the bears? <laughs> the bears. Did you see the claws on that? It gives a whole new meaning. Next time I go order a bear claw from Dunkin' Donuts, I'm going to say, you want to see a bear claw? Let me show you a bear. You know, as many times as I've seen the picture, I've just pulled up our website now to look at it again. It's just, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the claws on that thing, we asked him, and I don't think we ever got an answer, but they've got to be several inches long. I thought he said it was about eight Is inches. Is that what he said? Of I some missed of those. part. Yeah. I may have dozed off during that part, but. What I mean, what a what a storied career Rick has had. You know, he's proven himself to be a patriot of the United States. He he almost had to sacrifice his life and came close to sacrificing his wife's life to do his job over in Saint Croix. Uh, brother, you are a true patriot, a true hero. I can't tell you how honored we were to have or are to have had you on here, and that you gave us all the extra time. Uh, I've got a feeling that if we'd ask you for another six hours, you'd have done it. Well, he, he's invited us up to Alaska, and I put pictures oh. of his boat up there. He, he said, come up to Alaska. We'll go out on my that boat. That boat is sweet. I mean, that is sweet. Well, I'll tell you the other thing, too, is, is how weird is it? And this is the cop thing, right? The hair is on the back of your neck. He walks by what is later found out to be the serial killer, uh, Israel mm -hmm. Keys. Yeah. And just he knows it. It's just that sixth sense. You walk by, and it's like— and he said he did. He walked with his back towards the guy. And fortunately, when he was out jogging, mm -hmm. he's, he was armed. But there was, as they found out later, this guy was scanning and trolling jogging trails and places looking for women to kidnap. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing about Rick here, he's, uh, he's, he writes articles for Firearms News. So if you're into that kind of thing, you know, keep an eye open for his articles because now you've heard from the man. You know his background. And when you see this picture of the grizzly, you'll know he's a good oh. shot. And one with the set of... How how big of a set of balls do you have to have? Oh, I'd, I'd still be cleaning my pants out. <laughs> <laughs> no, Murph. The the bear would be picking his teeth with what was left oh of your pants. Gosh. Picking those out. Give me a toothpick. Uh -huh. I think I still got a little Murph in here. <laughs> Brother Rick, thank you, man. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you guys. And thank you guys. Hey, we appreciate it. So if you like what you heard, if you like this episode, head on over to pay, or head on over to Apple, Spotify, give us those five stars, leave your comments. We take all comments with stride. We try mm -hmm. to progress and do better based upon the comments and the suggestions you give us. So go do that. It's very important. We get some feedback. We, we find out from you guys how you think we're doing. So head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. See the pictures we're telling you about and tell me that you wouldn't crap your pants if that thing just even got within a mile of you. <laughs> you know, and uh, follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Yeah, you know, we, we've got a ton of content on there. It's so much fun. You just got to join it. And don't forget to go visit Game of Crimes fans. Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen, Rules with the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Just head on over there. That's our private group where we have better discussions um, and funny stuff. We share a lot of pictures there. So head on over there. But again, no matter what you do, just tune in again next week because we got, we're going to do the same thing again. We've got an episode coming up, four-parter. You're going to want to hear this because this gets into something we've been asked a lot before about uh, mental illness or not mental health, I should say, mm -hmm. um, dealing with officer wellness um, how do you survive these shootings? You know, how do you deal with the trauma, the PTSD? And we've got somebody who's been through it, got a hell of a story to tell, and we'll bring that to you that next week. But in the meantime, 
We want to thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Don't Get Me Near a Bear Like That Again Game of Crimes. 